Brian McClanahan Show, episode 269. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. That's mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll and you get a free course when you do so. And I've got eight courses available for purchase. A lot of great stuff, things you're going to want. So go on out and get McClanahan Academy. You get on that list as well, and you get the best deals on forthcoming courses. And the best deals, any sales that I run, you get that information if you are a subscriber to McClanahan Academy. A free subscriber to McClanahan Academy. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also go to anchor.fm. And there, just search for Brian McClanahan Show. You'll find that you can sponsor the show that way. A lot of great ways to support the show. And, of course, you can get your Brian McClanahan Show gear at brianmcclanahan.com. Just click on the Shop tab at the top of the page. You can uh, sport my shirts, stickers, wall plates, wall clocks, a lot of great stuff with my logo on it. So it's a great way to support the show and advertise the show. And please, again, rate the show on whatever platform you use to listen to the podcast. Share it around on social media. Um, share it with your friends, do everything you can to spread the word about thinking locally and acting locally, because that's really how we're going to change the world. Now, all that said, let's talk about the topic for the day. And that topic for the day is tradition. And it comes from an essay that Richard Weaver wrote back in the 1950s. And it's a very short little essay. In fact, it's about a page and a half review of Russell Kirk's conservative mind. Now, a lot of libertarians don't particularly care for Russell Kirk. Russell Kirk was fairly harsh on libertarians. Um, but he had a lot of valuable things to say, particularly about tradition and what it means. Now, the point of this particular essay, and if you don't know anything about Richard Weaver, Richard Weaver is one of the great conservative intellectuals of the mid-20th century. Um, without question, uh, he was one of the most important Southern intellectuals of the 20th century. He died a long time ago. But uh, the fact is, Weaver was so prolific in his scholarship. Um, there are uh, massive amounts, there is, I should say, massive amounts of material. Ma there are massive amounts of essays that he's written, books, essay collections. Uh, he was active. And he had a lot to say about many different things. And Weaver, like many intellectuals, actually uh, was a leftist at one point. And he came around to a different perspective as he studied. And again, this brings me back to when I was in graduate school. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast. When my, uh, well, one of the professors at South Carolina, the department chair, said that the reason he was a liberal is because he studied history. And for me... The reason that I wasn't a leftist is because I studied history. And this actually brings up a very important question. 
And it's the question that Weaver asks in the essay, in the title of the essay. This was published in National Review of All Places in 1956. And the title of this essay is Which Ancestors? Now, I, a long time ago, I can't remember the episode number, but I did a, an episode of the Brian McClanahan Show on liberty. And what does that mean? Because we have several different conceptions of liberty. There is the liberty of the individual. There is the liberty of the community. There is a liberty, the freedom from fear and want. There are different types of liberties. And so when we use the term liberty, we have to understand that that can mean different things to different people. And in a society that's able to handle differences, which a federal republic, a thinking locally, acting locally federal republic would be able to do, we could have a Massachusetts or a California that has a different conception of liberty than, say, Alabama or South Carolina. It would work. The problem is when you try to force one version of liberty on the rest of America, and we think that is it. This is the only version of liberty we have. You see, humans are naturally inclined to be culturally imperialistic. We want other people to think like us, and we try to force other people to think like us. I mean, look, the fact that I am an influencer, which is what you would call a podcast or a YouTube channel, means that um, I'm advocating a position. However, if you don't want to think like me, I'm okay with that. Just don't think that I'm going to think like you. You see, that is the true, in my mind, the true freedom that diversity of thought offers. And we should accept that. Look, there are people even on my side of many issues that I don't agree with on everything. And that's okay. And I tell them that. Um, the other day when I when I reviewed the uh, the Jarrett Stepman book on uh, the the uh, war on history, I was pretty harsh in my criticisms of a couple of things. But at the end of the day, I urge you to buy the book because I thought it was at least a valuable conversation to have on the topic. And I thought he had some good information in the book and some that I just didn't think was good enough. But regardless, um, I don't. I think Stepman is at least an ally in some ways. Um, so I am in favor of diversity of thought. When Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez something, says something that's intelligent, which is not very often, but every now and then she does, I'm more than willing to say, yeah, that's right. Because again, I believe in diversity of thought. I also believe that every person uh, who has... Uh, and, and look, I call people stupid at times. I do these things because I think sometimes people are saying stupid things or what they their positions are stupid. I mean, look, I'll say that. But on the other hand, I believe they should be able to say them as much as they want. There should not be any type of censorship on thought or speech. Um, it's just a matter of fact. Now, some would say there should be because you could have the danger to the community or danger to society or whatever the case may be. But again, this is different conceptions of liberty. There's also different conceptions of tradition. So when we talk about tradition and what that actually means, when we talk about this term tradition and ancestors, let's venerate our ancestors, which ones? Which ones do we talk about? So I'm actually going to use that. I'm going to, I'm going to read this essay and then I'm going to, I'm going to formulate my discussion off of some of the things that Weaver is saying here. So again, published in National Review in 1956, July of 1956, in fact. 
and it comes on the heels of Russell Kirk's Conservative Mind. Now, if you've never read Conservative Mind, it's a worthwhile read, even if you don't agree with Kirk. It's a worthwhile read uh, because now, the problem with Conservative Mind is that it's very eclectic. And this is the issue, essentially, that Richard Weaver is bringing up. Which ancestors do we venerate? So let me start with this. He says, quote, Russell Kirk's importance in the conservative renaissance became evident with the publication of his The Conservative Mind. This brilliant history of conservative thought remi reminded the public that not all profound thinking veers to the left, and that past ages at least have seen so essential conflict between conservatism and benevolence. Have seen no essential conflict, I'm sorry, between conservatism and benevolence. Since then, Mr. Kirk has produced a steady stream of articles and reviews, tested, testing by the touchstone of his conservatism a wide variety of men, movements, and institutions. The present work brings these together. What is this touchstone that he applies? It consists principally of a respect for the wisdom of our ancestors and a veneration of tradition. And essentially, that's what we're getting at. In fact, this collection of essays that I'm reading this from for Richard Weaver is entitled A Defense of Tradition. Weaver was a traditionalist, but he recognized something about tradition, and that's what I want to talk about in this. Using these as his ultimate appeals, he attacks incessantly the spirit of innovation, politics based on upon abstractions, and that program for diminishing the mind which is called progressive education. The objects of attack are certainly chosen with sound instinct, and no one is more gratified than I by his effort to make the public aware that the past contains some achievements superior to the present, and that presentism can never be a measuring rod where values are concerned. Here is Richard Weaver using the term presentism in 1956. It's something we're consistently wrestling with today. When we talk about the attack on history. It's a presentist attack. The values of today can never be used as a measuring rod where values are concerned. It is because I want this awareness to be wider and more irresistible that I mention a few difficulties which seem to be showing up. Weaver's aware there's a lot here. Defecated liberalism is what Kirk calls it. Defecated liberalism. Um, so, this is the issue. Again, presentism is bad. We should respect tradition, but there's a problem with the conservative mind. And this is something that when I was a graduate student in South Carolina, I went to Clyde Wilson, Wilson's office one day and I was talking to him about the conservative mind. And I said, you know, how can Russell Kirk put a chapter on, say, John Adams and with a chapter on John C. Calhoun. And his response was, well, Kirk was a little bit too eclectic in his choice of subjects. You see, because here we run into the rub with this belief and a tradition of multiple origins. Which ancestors are we going to venerate? Are we going to venerate John Adams and John C. Calhoun? Is there a reconciliation there or not? And this is where Weaver is spot on. He says, The danger in erecting the wisdom of our ancestors as the standard is that it invites the question, which ancestors? Which ancestors? 
To someone in Massachusetts, John Adams might be a superb choice for a conservative American. But to someone in South Carolina, would not John C. Calhoun also be a superb choice? And for someone in South Carolina, would John Adams and the Adams family be a suitable choice to emulate when the Adams family was so critical of the South? And vice versa. Would, uh, would John C. Calhoun be a suitable choice in Massachusetts when Calhoun blamed the North for much of the woes of the United States? Now, there's much to learn from John Adams, and there's much to learn from John C. Calhoun. But which ancestors are we going to want? On the other hand, should we respect Abraham Lincoln as much as we respect, say, John Tyler or George Washington or Thomas Jefferson? I use John Tyler because I think John Tyler is the greatest president in American history, better than Abraham Lincoln. And Lion Gardner Tyler spent a lot of time talking about how Lincoln and Tyler, John Tyler, did not even compare. It's one of my favorite essays he ever wrote. And of course, Lion Gardner Tyler, the son of John Tyler, and uh, the president of the College of William and Mary. Um, he was very critical of Abraham Lincoln and very critical of those who tried to say, well, how can you even compare John Tyler to Abraham Lincoln? There's no comparison. And Lion Gardner Tyler said, you're right. Really, there's no comparison. Lincoln is far worse. So he says this, which ancestors? He says, after all, Adam was our ancestor. And so are many who have spoken radically or superficially. If we add the voices of our ancestors together, we get the same sort of melee of opinion that fills the air today. And it may be questioned whether the wiser voices would not be drowned out by others. If we have an ancestral legacy of wisdom, we also have an ancestral legacy of folly. And the ground for choosing between them is still to seek. This is absolutely spot on, 150% correct. If we have an ancestral legacy of wisdom, we also have an ancestral legacy of folly. And so at the end of the day, which ancestral legacy are we going to follow? And when I say that, again, I bring up two traditions in America. We have two ancestral legacies. And I'll talk more about this in the next couple of paragraphs that he, that he says. But we have two legacies in America. We have, as uh, my friend and colleague Dr. Livingston, Don Livingston says, we have a Lincolnian legacy and we have a Jeffersonian legacy. Now, for years, the progressive historians tried to detach Lincoln with the Jeffersonian tradition. You really can't do it. You can't do it at all. Now, there's certain ways if you are playing fast and loose with some of the information and you're, and you're molding Jefferson into something that you want him to be, well, then maybe you could say that Lincoln and Jefferson have some things in common. After all, I think this all stems from the fact that Lincoln essentially said the Declaration of Independence is a, is a proposition document, and he did this by codifying it at Gettysburg in the Gettysburg Address. But as the historian Joseph Ellis has said, and Joseph Ellis was by no means somebody who was a radical right-winger or someone who didn't like Lincoln, he said Lincoln made all of it up. There's no clear attachment between the founding generation and Lincoln on that particular issue at all. The Gettysburg Address is a disaster. 
for America. It's a disaster for American government. It's a disaster for the way we think about the past. But what it has done is created a new type of tradition in America. And so we have the folks at Claremont Institute, Hillsdale College, the Straussians, the Nationalists. They attach themselves to Abraham Lincoln as their guy. And that creates a certain type of tradition in America. It's the proposition nation uh, field. It's the proposition nation group. It's the group that believes that Lincoln is the embodiment of American conservatism. Not so fast. But before I get into that, I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be right back. All right, so we're back here talking about Richard Weaver, Abraham Lincoln. So on one hand, you have this Lincolnian tradition. On the other hand, you have something else entirely the Jeffersonian tradition, which when Lincoln said we're going to have government of the people, by the people, and for the people, of course, he's ignoring the fact that he was fighting expressly against self-determination for the South. That was real government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It doesn't matter what you think of the cause. That was real self-determination. And you see, you create this tradition in America that you can't leave. So what's happened is, We have a tradition of folly with Lincoln, but yet that becomes a tradition. Another example is Franklin Roosevelt traditional. And I'll I'll say this. About uh, three or four days ago, Bernie Sanders published a tweet where he said he brought up Franklin Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights from a speech in 1945, and he said, here we go. Essentially, Bernie Sanders is hearkening back to a progressive tradition in America. In some ways, the progressives are not really progressive at all. What they really are is traditionalists. They're thinking about an American tradition that was essentially founded in the 20th century, the American progressive tradition, and if you don't believe me, Start talking about tearing down the welfare state. The argument will usually come down, well, we can't throw a granny out of the nursing home and we can't uh, do these things that are so, we can't hurt people, we can't get people off of food, whatever it is. Talk about tearing down the welfare state. And if the person is intellectually honest uh, and doesn't just start calling you names, they're going to try to come up with excuses like I just said there. Well, these things help people, these things. What they are doing is defending an institution based on custom and precedent. They're essentially saying, I am a traditionalist and my tradition is the welfare state. My tradition is the New Deal, the Great Society. That is my tradition. We all know that once you get a big federal program, you're never going to get rid of it. You're never going to get rid of Obamacare. It will never go away. It might be modified. But it's never going to go away. Because what happens, it becomes entrenched. And that entrenchment then creates a situation where people defend it on conservative traditionalist grounds. Whether it's good or bad, it's custom and precedent. The Department of Education, a nice example. Some of the other regulatory agencies in the United States, nice examples. These things are horrible. They're horrible because they do all kinds of bad things, but yet 
They're defended essentially on traditionalist terms. So Weaver continues in this very fine short little essay. He says, essentially the same objection applies to a general embrace of tradition, plus one further difficulty. Traditions grow up insensibly and, as it were, vegetatively. They are adaptations and include strong emotional preferences. These facts in themselves may be good, yet they certainly create problems when traditions come into conflict and have to be reconciled. So let's pause there for a second. If I say there's a tradition in America of uh, state powers, of originalism, decentralization, real federalism, that tradition is going to come into conflict with the Lincolnian position of national power, strong central authority, and top-down government. It's certainly going to come into conflict with the Reconstruction positions, the Reconstruction period of the Republican Party, one-party rule of the general government. Because, you see, they were trying to create something else, a tradition that did not exist in America yet, but exists now. This is where the Republican Party nowadays, those like Dinesh D'Souza and others who are simply just party hacks, will say the Republican Party is the party of Lincoln, the Democrats are the party of slavery. There's no nuance to that. There's nothing to it. It's just complete stupidity. But the problem is, we have this Republican tradition that does, the Republican Party has its own traditions. It goes back to 1854. They were the anti-slavery party in that they did not want slavery extended in the territories, but a lot of Republicans could care less about what happened in the South. They certainly were the Reconstruction Party. They wanted to foist a national government on the rest of the United States and implement the Hamiltonian economic system or the American system. They were certainly interested in that. So what's happened is they have become traditional. Abraham Lincoln is seen as a traditional embodiment of American conservatism. I mean, false. this is false. But this is what's happened. You see, so you have two traditions now popping up. One would say Lincoln's a tyrant. Lincoln destroyed government of the people by the, by the people and for the people. Lincoln, the Lincolnians would say, no, no, no. Lincoln was protecting democracy in America. And so you have, or we could take Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt, destructive of the Constitution, ran roughshod over it, in fact. No, no, no. He is doing things to help the people. And those things that help the people have to be preserved. You see. Since they are not rational creations, Weaver continues, they are not susceptible to rational adjustment unless one is willing to isolate intellectually their elements of value and of truth. But he's saying this is very difficult because it's an emotional response to tradition. We have that. If you look at the progressive agenda, it's a very emotional agenda. Just by saying things like, well, when you say that, that's racist. Or when you say this, you're going to throw granny out of a nursing home. Or when you do this, you're going to uh, hurt poor people. Those are, um, those are intended to be emotional responses. No one wants to hurt poor people. No one wants to throw granny out of, a mobile, of, of, her, of her home, right? her, uh, her assisted living facility. Nobody wants to do that. Um, in modern society... Uh, nobody wants to say, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I don't like this person because of their race. Nobody wants to do that. 
Those are, but those are emotional things. I don't want to do that because I, that, that hurts me emotionally. I don't want to be called a bad name. That's the whole point of the argument. I've, I've talked about this on this podcast before, emotivism and how dangerous that actually is to good government. If we, have, if we, if we wrap everything in emotion, well, we've got a very bad government system because sometimes you have to make decisions that are not emotionally popular. They're going to hurt. They're going to, I mean, it's not going to be easy. But we have a, a society in which we have a bunch of children running around who are adults who won't make any hard decisions. And of course, unfortunately, they, many of them are in the United States Congress and the executive branch. Because if these people were actually willing to make hard decisions, we would not have the monstrosity of the federal deficit, the monstrosity of the national debt. We wouldn't have these things. But because we're so afraid to throw a granny out of the nursing home and cut off aid to old people and make it to where poor people can't have things or make it to where the military doesn't get as much money, I mean, that's another one. Well, these are all emotional responses. It's emotional. That's all it is, emotional. It's not rational. If it was rational, it'd be easy. It's emotional. And traditions offer emotional things. How dare you critique our progressive ancestors? How dare you critique our founding fathers? Abraham Lincoln. You don't like Abraham Lincoln? How dare you do that? You see, that's an emotional response. When Mel Bradford was going to be given a position in the Lincoln administration, I'm sorry, the Lincoln, that make him really old, the Reagan administration, uh, and the neoconservatives pulled out all the stops to get rid of him, that was an emotional response. And it was an emotional response because Bradford had said something disparaging about Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln's been dead a long time. Lincoln doesn't really need defending. And you can say negative things about Abraham Lincoln, and you should be able to say negative things about Abraham Lincoln. Shouldn't, I mean, if, if it, there's negative things to say about him, is this going to necessarily tarnish who he is? Maybe. Maybe his reputation needs to be dropped a notch or two. He certainly wasn't the greatest president in American history. Um... So the problem is that people get an emotional response to these traditions. And that emotional response to these traditions is dangerous. It's dangerous. Because when you start dealing with emotion and not logic, well, emotion is very hard to undo. Logic, you can persuade somebody, not, not with emotion. And he says that. He says, since they are not rational creations, they are not susceptible to rational adjustment unless one is willing to isolate intellectually their elements of value and of truth. Yet, he says, this is a process disrespectful, disrespectful of tradition in the sense that it transcends tradition and looks for some higher ground. So he's saying even thinking about these things rationally is, is dangerous to tradition it, because it seeks something else. It's not just taking tradition for face value. There's something else to it. I could say that the progressives are some of the most traditional people in America. And they do. They just take the Great Society, the New Deal, all the tenets of whatever liberal agenda you can think, and they just make them their own, and they become dogmatic in it. Whereas conservatives tend to take stuff like this, and we debate it. We wrestle it. Uh, wrestle with it. I mean, is this going to work? What do we think about this? I'm doing it right now. 
Maybe it's because of the intellectual level of the left. They're just willing to do this. It's often said that conservatives are morons or just stupid people. I don't know. I've seen a lot of uh, stupid people on the intellectual left. He says, the only way a traditionalist can object to this is by saying that tradition expresses something not in the arguable realm, which is itself a grave commitment. Tradition, tradition advocates something that is not in the arguable realm. It's something out there, something you can see and maybe feel, but you can't touch it. It's not tangible, but it's important. Traditions matter. So he concludes this essay. He says, I am glad to say that I agree with practically every position on issues that Mr. Kirk takes in this wide-ranging collection of essays. I only wish to see his learning and persuasive rhetoric reinforced by a different kind of artillery a kind that will prevent the conservative from being a disadvantage in armaments, from, from being at a disadvantage in armaments. So he's saying, look, I wish we could focus on these things because conservatives need to defend themselves. They need to do it, and Kirk is not providing enough ammunition to do that. He says, I do not want to see the conservative mind reduced entirely to arguments based on authority. This is what the left is doing now. This is about authority. Essentially, what's happened is the left has stayed in power and the right has, be has moved out and has become very fractured for a lot of reasons. She says, I do not want to see the conservative reduced entirely to arguments based on authority. That's I'm sorry, Weaver says. Actually, he has on his side some of the greatest masters of theory, which is why the liberal usually looks silly when with the use of their methods, he is pushed back into his primary assumptions. So he's saying the leftists really don't have a lot of ground to stand on. And when they're pushed, it's very easy to push them back into their corner. Simple, really. Again, because they don't want to look silly. He concludes, distinctions in terms of principle are especially needful at times like this, when quite preposterous persons are seeking to apply the name conservatism to themselves and in some cases are getting away with it. This is an important point. And it's ongoing. Some people call themselves conservatives, and they're really not. What are they conserving? Nothing that's really conservative. They're not trying to roll back the Great Society, the uh, New Deal. They're not trying to reassert real conservatism. It's just, as Michael Malice said, it's, it's essentially progressivism riding the speed limit. This has been going on since the first Congress, though. This is not new. It's been happening a long time. And unfortunately, we have these two irreconcilable positions on tradition. And um, I will see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>